Welcome to episode two of the On The Way podcast. Uh, this is a podcast on a faith grounded in love, compassion, inclusion, and mystery. Uh, episode one uh, was Peter Cat and I discussing uh, many areas of, uh, I guess, this approach to faith. And uh, Peter, you've joined me again for episode two. Uh, Hi, we're Dom. discussing non-dualism today. What a great idea. Mm, a good topic to discuss. <laughs> Absolutely. And we thought, why not draft in a third co-host for this Absolutely. discussion? Absolutely. Otherwise, it'd only be two of us and that could set up a <laughs> dualism. Yes. <laughs> Uh, absolutely, and uh, you know, we I could have I could have looked far and wide for today's guest, but instead I just looked at the other end of the house I'm living in to find my own father. Who uh, this is not nepotism; he just actually does happen to be an expert in this field. Uh, former Baptist minister, uh, now the CEO of Centre for Men Australia, and uh, and working in the tradition of people like Richard Raw. Uh, on topics like non-dualism. Thank you for joining us, Dad. Thank you, son, Dom. <laughs> uh, are you, uh, should we go with Dad or Richard through this? What do you I think? I think call me Richard, Richard for this, for the sake of everybody else who would not see me as Dad. That would be too weird for you? No, that, that would right. work for me. Okay, well, uh, Richard and Peter, we are discussing non-dualism. So I think the first thing I want to ask, and I might direct this actually at you, Dad, because I know you've studied a lot in this. What's a definition you would give of non-dualism? Another way to call, and, and possibly non-dualism has an implicit negative because it's non-something. So a unity uh, consciousness is another way to see it, mm. which is a more positive view. And it's to include uh, the contradictions or paradoxes a way in which we do this, to be able to see all perspectives and not to judge, not to judge any perspective as wrong, even to say that it's other is that it to include that other. Mm. And the beauty of non, non-dualism is that it includes all perspectives and unifies them. And often that's incredibly difficult to do. And as I said, paradox is one way in which Jesus did that incredibly well. So I guess if, if you are listening to this, in non, this is the first time you've heard the concept of non-dualism, you might be wondering why is it important? Um, Peter, I would think it's one of the most key underlying principles of the Christian faith, of the life of Jesus, was to break out of the black and white, us versus them binary. Um, do, do you see it as, as fundamental to the Christian faith? Uh, absolutely. Um, I guess the reason we need to talk about it is that dualism is a very seductive paradigm. And the Christian church uh, over time has fallen into... Uh, understanding the world in dualistic terms. So Mm. there's saint versus sinner, those sort of ideas, good versus bad. And we live in a world that's far more complex and our faith needs to be able to respond to a complex world rather than to try to work in that binary um, and dismissive way. But the church has fallen for it, and that's partly because there are there's a lot of imagery in the Bible that seems to be implying that there is a dualism. So light versus darkness, flesh versus spirit, those sort of uh, what look like dualisms, uh, we need to actually look at understanding that we actually live in a very complex universe that doesn't doesn't actually accommodate dualist, dualist thinking very well at all, really. Well, I think it's, it's, and I have not done any studies in this or even read studies, but my assumption would be it's one of, uh, probably base human nature to respond in a way that, that forms your group by what is not your group. That's right. And us versus yeah, their mentality. That's right. Um, and you can you can see it maybe in a healthy form around like in rugby league state of origin time is always a good way to see dualism. If you're a Queensland fan, New South Wales are the, the enemy. If you're a New South Wales fan, Queensland yep. are the enemy. 
the risk is when you take a similarly simple mindset to uh, people of different religions or yep. people of different sexual orientations or, or political beliefs. Um, I have to say, as one who doesn't follow soccer, I've never understood what the state of origin was about. But uh, <laughs> yeah, beautiful answer. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I think state of origin and and all of the sort of tribal behaviours around sport are actually uh, symptoms of something much deeper that's wrong with the way we live. And okay. I think in heaven there are no football teams. Okay, that's mm. that's a that's a quote we could put on a plaque somewhere. Absolutely, uh, I, I might argue that the Saints are up there, but then that's another story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it, it is interesting though because you know people can probably identify their their bias, their uh, I guess one eyed view when it comes to football. Maybe if, at least if you chatted to them for a few minutes, they could probably identify that is their perspective of the sporting landscape. But it, I feel like when it comes to other more important, more central topics to how we live, it's much harder to notice your own dualism, your own prejudices, your own uh, what groups you have defined yourself as in and against. Um, uh, Dad, I want to speak briefly about your time as a... Sorry, Richard. <laughs> I want to speak briefly about your time as a Baptist minister um, because I know that, that you were part of a tradition that, uh, because I grew up as the, you know, as the pastor's son in this tradition, that very much defined its faith by, I guess, who was in and who was out and very much, you know, anyone who was not in was seen as wrong or, or ill-informed. Or somehow just slightly inferior. So mm. one of the subjects I did in my studies was, of course, Baptist distinctives. What makes Baptists better than everybody else? Now, I don't think Baptists run around actually essentially saying that, but there is an inherent implied belief that our approach or that approach is better or superior than other approaches in some way. Uh, and, and I would have to say that any belonging system needs to mark its boundaries, otherwise it doesn't define itself based on anything. Uh, you, you clearly have to have some boundaries. The problem is, is when those boundaries are held so rigidly and that there are boundary riders, those who are police, constantly policing the boundaries and deciding whether you're accepted or whether you're not accepted, whether you're included or excluded. And we use all kinds of language for that. You're a backslider or you're apostate or you are scapegoated and scapegoating is essential to, uh, not, uh, to dualistic thinking as the other, which we can then corporately dispose of all of our guilt by finding someone who's not us and they're bad. And therefore, suddenly we are approved, we are good. And it, it gives you, a, as you said, a very uh, seductive sense of entitlement. Uh, you mentioned state of origin, and you, you honestly do believe, while the game is on, that, that your team are virtuous and the other team are evil. Mm. And uh, you, you realize how seductive it is. This goes right into the heart of every human relationship where I'm seeking to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. And whenever I do that, I'm using power to persuade. Why? Because I believe that I am right and you have to understand it my way. So, Peter, why? I mean, you do a lot of work with uh, people who society and many, I guess, groups in the Western world have deemed as the other. So asylum seekers, people of different sexual orientations, uh, these sorts of groups, the homeless. Um, uh, you've seen probably firsthand the, the effects of a dualistic way of thinking because you've seen the people who 
get deemed the other. You see the people who suffer from the exclusion that dualistic thinking uh, provides. What do you think practically those dangers of that way of thinking are? What, why is it so, um, I guess, troublesome to, to think in a, in a black and white dualistic, uh, I'm right, they're wrong, I'm in, they're out way of thinking? Well, the, the inherent problem is that because we label the other as something other, then we begin the process of dehumanising them. And that process, in its extreme, leads to the destruction of the other. And you know, we're, we're seeing that played out in the world politic, where ISIS describes us as the other and seeks to destroy us, and we have described them as the other and are seeking to destroy them. So, and 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 one always has to dehumanise people in order to do that. You, you really can't run around saying these people are our sisters and brothers. You have to turn them into something evil. So the word evil is used as a way of dehumanising and therefore legitimising the ability to destroy. And at a more milder or seemingly benign level, we other people by labelling them as homeless or drug addicts. And in part that then allows us to not work out how we uh, care for them and incorporate them into society. So that person's homeless is a way of saying, well, they don't really belong here. We don't have to engage with them. That person's a refugee. So we can park them off on an island somewhere and watch them go crazy and feel, well, that's okay really because they're less human than we are. Mm. And, and Peter, if we're able to say that, are we not also, without noticing, dehumanising ourselves? Absolutely. And, and the, the contagion then spreads further and further. So you know, we, we've put those people out on islands uh, and at the same time that mechanism is now being applied to pensioners, to the unemployed. You know, this, this systematic demonisation of people which is legitimising the the robo-debt uh, thing is an expression of the same thing. These people, because they don't have jobs, are not as worthy as those of us who do, and we should be suspicious of them, and you know, Aboriginal people should all be given cards so that because we don't trust them to spend money. And so the whole thing becomes really insidious and creeps closer and closer to the centre, and in the process we do lose our own humanity. Uh, I think it's, it is interesting to me that that it seems quite clearly through the life of jesus um these principles of of non-dual living of complete unity of i guess people from all backgrounds all traditions he's trying to bring unity trying to say these people you've excluded they're included and these people who you thought were wrong they're not wrong um yet in his name a church was started that now has numerous different just in itself denominations who think they are in some way better than each other as you were mentioning earlier uh, richard and and I think that's um, – would you just put that down to, to base human nature that that we have to define ourselves by who we are better than and the only way we can be right is if someone else is wrong? It's certainly one of the one of – uh, it is yes, it is an expression of that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In a lot of med- medieval art, you'll see uh, Jesus portrayed holding two fingers up, saying, I am divine, I am human. 
And what that is saying is God is including us in the divine, which is the most extraordinary statement of inclusion. And of course, if we are wrestling with that mystery, absolute mystery, ultimate mystery, ultimate mystery, then we have to ask ourselves, what do we exclude within ourselves? What do we exclude in our world? And in so doing, reap destruction on our planet at an environmental level and a social level at a political level and so on. Why do we spend trillions on weapons? Why? Why? I mean, it actually is crazy, but of course it's dualism. It, it is interesting in that sense that we are, we are self-destructive. We are destroying ourselves because of boundaries that we've created, mm. Mm. Um, which really I think if you looked at humanity from an external perspective would just look like lunacy. Wouldn't mm. it? Well, uh, some of the Girardian scholars suggest that that this is this is this this was inevitable. We get to this point um, as a result of the Jesus phenomenon. Really, that Jesus Jesus shows that the way we have built community was through this othering process, and then shows that that othering process is just what it is. It's not. It it isn't valid and the other isn't really the other. And humanity's at the crossroads in that we, we now have to find a different way of living. And the choices are we will either uh, blow ourselves apart because the inherent competitiveness of being human needs to be dealt with somehow, and in the past we've dealt with it by scapegoating. Now that the scapegoating mechanism has been or is in the process of being unmasked, we have to find a new way of dealing with that competition. Mm. And the Jesus movement suggests that that way is through radical things like loving, forgiving your enemies, um, th only through love rather than competition. And we actually have to find a new way of being. But the, the stark choice is that if we don't choose that radical way, we will continue down the old path without the, without the safety valve working as well as it used to, and we will eventually destroy ourselves. Well, I, I think something that shows how deeply embedded uh, dualistic thinking is within, uh, I guess, myself, and I think within humanity, is I remember um, when my, my dad was introducing me to the ideas of non-dualism and it was, you know, we would chat about it over a number of, of months and years. And when I started to own these concepts and really engage in them, I, I was so attracted to them and I started thinking, I've got non-dualism, I've figured it out. Yeah, you know? yeah that's exactly, that's, that's, that's the seduction, that yeah. is the seduction. It, it is the, I was becoming dualistic about non-dualism yep. and that, it's so deeply ingrained yep. in our, our way of thinking and living that, the, I mean, the big question is how do you actually break out of it? Yeah. And it's one of the things where we have to be alive to in a community like the cathedral. We can get so so caught up on being inclusive that we see ourselves as superior to the non-inclusive communities and set up a new dualism mm. of, of we are superior to others. So um, walking that line of not falling, not, not getting seduced by the old way is, is a constant call to vigilance because you know, I hear people talking about this place in those sort of terms and you know there's part of me that feels well you know aren't we great we're we're, we're pro uh, 
people, we're, we're pro-supporting people with diverse sexualities and gender, aren't we great? And it does sort of come over as, well, you know, we're better off than those nasty people down the road. Mm. And you then hate those that you call labellers homophobic. Yeah, that's right. And mm. uh, you only oh. recreate the problem. Well, this yeah. is, this is a, I think, something I've said to you before was um, I got to a stage where kind of coming out of a traditional faith upbringing, I started getting quite mad at what I saw as, I guess, the traditional or fundamental wing of the church for the damage or the hurt that I saw they were causing the uh, LGBT community. Mm. Um and it didn't take long, and this is something I've realized recently, until I noticed that the the hate or exclusion that I was so mad at them for feeling towards that community, I was now feeling towards them. Yeah. And you end up in this cycle of hate, where it's just hate meeting hate, and I actually, you haven't escaped the dualistic divide, I was just on the other side of mm. it. Yeah, that's right, just swap sides. Yeah. yeah. I've just, or I've create just... a new, or find a new, yeah. a new expression of it. We're, we're forever inventing new expressions of dualism. Yeah, and ultimately, buying into either side of a dualistic divide is never going to to work. It's it's going to fall down. The the thing again that Jesus offers us, which is so offensive to our egos, is that to be non-dual requires enormous humility. It requires a surrender of my power, mm-hmm. my need to be right. It allows no space for me to exercise power over you, because as soon as I do or I try to, I'm entering back into mm. a dualistic perspective. And it is incredibly difficult for me, I'm just going to be honest personally, very difficult for me to hold the tension of not knowing and not resolving the difference. Mm. And that is, again, what I would say the cross does so brilliantly, is a metaphor for how we can hold what the uncertainty of the outcome. What, what does it look like? I, I lose everything if I don't hold my position vehemently and passionately against you. I lose my stand, my stake in the ground. So I have to surrender that and trust that something new will emerge, a third, a third uh, option, which I can't even imagine at this point, a possibility beyond my reasoning. Uh, well, I think um, I've I've mentioned before as well. One the my favourite part of the entire Bible, which I know is a, a broad thing to say, but my my favourite few words are Jesus in the face of his oncoming crucifixion saying, "Father, forgive them; they don't know what they're doing." Because in that moment, in that moment, uh, when all the hatred of humanity is being put on you as as the scapegoat, as this one person, he could have responded by finding the other side of the dualistic divide. He could have said to his disciples. All right, now I want you to go out and form a group against these guys. We'll get them back. Mm. Do you know, which is, I think, what what most humans in that scenario would probably do. There would be a vengeance. There would be an anger. There'd be mm. retribution. But instead, he just says, you can meet me with as much hate as you want, but I am not going to stop mm. meeting you with love. Mm. That, yep. that's, that's unconditional. Yep. And I think that's pretty transformative and pretty challenging to, uh, yeah. to society. And, and it's the power of the resurrection too. One of the things I'm mindful of when we move into the Easter season is the story of the disciples in the upper room and imagining how they felt as Jesus appeared to them. And I'm not surprised that they were fearful because they would, by all rights, expect him to be coming to get them. Mm. And the fact that he's opening 
line to them is peace be with you is radical because here's the guy they they have all shopped yeah. uh, we we like to scapegoat judas as the one who carries the can for it but the all they all nicked off they left jesus in the lurch they denied knowing him they did nothing to defend him uh, not that he would have wanted them to but they just left him then they come back together and he's suddenly amongst them and you can imagine that in the normal order of things he would have said you mongrels at least <laughs> if not you know used his godly power to fry them i mean you know, <laughs> and, and and yet he walks in and his opening line is one of the most radical lines in the scriptures mm. peace be with you mm. peace be with you not <laughs> why did you do it or where were you you know the the, the stuff that we would do to instinctively do mm. and feel was right to do for to someone who'd shopped us would be to call them to account you betrayed me yeah why yeah. did you do it guys guys where were you you know yeah. instead he just walks in and says peace be with you it Amazing. was it was 20 years ago where i suddenly saw a key scripture very differently which was when peter denied jesus for the third time and the cock crowed twice and jesus looked at peter and peter went outside and wept bitterly and it was his suddenly dawning that the look that jesus gave him was a look of love yeah that's right not mm. not, not of judgment yeah, not of betrayal yeah. not of how could you do this yeah, I, told I told you, you so i told you so <laughs> it was one of complete love yeah absolutely it is love that yeah, i did him that's right which is the unifying factor yeah. in non-duality is always love. always love that's right i think yeah. this we discussed this in the first episode is that the the divine is only ever loving. The response is only ever love. It's, I think you made the analogy, Peter. It's not love with a baseball bat behind the back. That's right, yeah. It's, it's always love. And uh, what, what might cause the tears, what might cause the breakdowns, that's everything we're bringing. But the, we're only ever met with love. That's right. That's it's it's funny one. you said several times only and love. And, of course, love is such an incredibly powerful force, but we do not believe its power. Yeah, We absolutely. do not trust its power. Uh, it, it it trumps all, <laughs> excuse the term, trumps all other powers. <laughs> mm. It's it, true. It, we, we don't trust it. That's exactly right. Speaking of non-dualism, um, you know, if you if you remove religion from the context, as a, you know, we've chatted about, you can see it every day. I mean, look at the political spectrum. You know, it's it's are you a, a liberal voter or a Labor voter or a Greens voter? You know what yes, I mean? But it's yeah. it's very much what camp are you in? Yes. And by by nature, what camp are you then against? I think one of the more disturbing trends at the moment is that we are getting... The, some of the dualisms are getting tighter. There was a day in in, in Australian politics when uh, the idea of being anti-the-other-side was something that was really only lived out during the election cycle. So there was, it was a bit of a political theatre mm -hmm. and people would go into the election cycle and do the, you know, vote for us because we're perfect and everything everything that they propose is, is going to be bad. And there was a sense in which the ads were almost caricatures of life and so people entered into the... It's a bit like football, really. They entered into the political theatre for the time of the election cycle. And then there are plenty of stories uh, of politicians after that working together across the political spectrum for to, to bring 
forward things that would work. And there were lots of compromises and and lots of people uh, having drinks together and stuff like that. And from what I'm hearing um, about the current state of play in politics is that they tend not to meet with each other anymore and that the, the whole political... Uh, election thing is now running three years at a time. As soon as one election cycle is over, the opposition, uh, whoever they are, starts bagging the government in a systematic way. They refuse to support stuff that the government brings forward, even if it's stuff that they had proposed three years before. Yeah. And, and take the word opposition uh, in its extreme and literal form. Um, and we are almost at a sort of form of political paralysis as as the, these dualis, this dualistic approach becomes more heavily entrenched, which I think is one of the reasons why we in the churches have to be showing an alternate reality, uh, showing how community can be built um, not on tribalism but through mutuality, breaking bread together, having having a table that brings together people who would normally not find themselves together. So uh, on a practical level, how do you break out of dualism? Which might be the hardest question, <laughs> I guess, to ask, but, but, but because I think a lot of people would identify this. They'd identify these feelings and if they really did some some soul searching, they would realise what dualistic divides they have bought into. Mm. You know, my uni's better than your uni, or yeah. or you know, my family's better than your family. Whatever it might be, how do you at least take the starting steps of breaking out of that that black and white way of thinking? I made the comment earlier before we started uh, that there are six essential non-dual containers uh, in life, and I named them as eternity. Uh, you can argue about eternity, but no one really has a clue. And if you name it, you, you really are talking out of the wrong end of your body. Uh, God, likewise, you, the more tightly you name God, the more you diminish that which you name. Uh, sexuality, which is a very challenging thing, but that energy is very powerful in a human being. Love, my goodness, how can you name love as right or wrong? You love. Uh, suffering. You cannot explain suffering. You cannot... Uh, control suffering. Suffering will happen regardless. Um, suffering, death, that ultimate reality of, for all of us. And if, and if those are ultimate non-dual realities, then you'll notice that most of your life it revolves around uh, um, those realities. You, you orbit those realities. And if that is true, then it'll be one of those that will plunge you into non-dualism. It's, they say that love and suffering uh, are the two agents. I said earlier about the power of love, but of course the power of love is cloaked in great powerlessness. And unless, and it was my own dislodging of uh, a decade ago, the dislodging of my own ability to be in control and explain my world in ways that made rational sense to me, that plunged me into a non duality I did not know. I did not know. And it was in this place of not knowing that all the shrill answers of it's this or it's that were not interesting to me anymore. I, even if they were right, what difference did it make in my suffering? None. And if that was true for me, then what about for everybody else? Which uh, then slowly has lifted the veil. And it has taken me a decade to notice how I rush back into wanting to be in control, therefore be dualistic. 
and how uh, seductive again, as you said. But my life is not dualistic. Only my head is. <laughs> it is only the head. Yes, yeah. No, I guess, and I guess the secret to all such um, acts of transformation, uh, the initial the initial thing that's required is to understand that is who you are. It's about self knowledge. So to be able to recognize how one is dualistic and how one thinks dualistically and being able to name it. So you know, the, the people who have, to people who are least racist in their, uh, the way they live are the people who own their racist mm-hmm. tendencies. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying, I'm not a racist, I but. mean, yeah, <laughs> or I'm not a racist. <laughs> yeah, for someone to say, I'm not a racist, uh, I think is, to, is, is really an act of not understanding who they really are. Mm. Because we all bring um, that dualistic understanding to groups of people. And, and someone who says they're not a racist, which is a way of setting themselves up against the people who they claim to be racists, often are therefore blind to the ways in which they are being racist. So they might think, oh, because I don't, denigrate aboriginals i'm not a racist but they but you can bet your bottom dollar through conversation that after a while they would say you know i've never i don't trust americans or i don't like palestinians or i mean there'll be there'll be some grouping of humanity that they mistrust Mm. and they will feel that that's legitimate because you know after you know, it's you know the argument would be basically how unreasonable for someone to denigrate Aboriginal people, but you know we all know that the Irish are stupid. I mean it's that sort of you know it's, it's that that you we we all have that tendency to stratify humanity, and the the the, the trick is to say yes that's me too. I I do have that tendency. I'm going to look that tendency square in the eye, I'm going to own it, and by owning it, I take away its power. Because mm. the, the things that ha- exercise strongest power over us are the very parts of us that we do not understand and do not see. You know, it's funny, as, as you're saying that, I notice even on myself, and I'm sure there'd be other people like that, as you start talking about people who say they're not racist, but obviously have these racist uh, tendencies, my mind's thinking, oh yeah, I know some of them. They're awful, aren't they? I'm, <laughs> I'm not racist, but I can see that they secretly yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, you've got to notice it's happening in all of us. That's in, right. in every one of us, these prejudices, we're, we're every day forming who we are and who we're against. That's right. And, and yeah, the, the the only way really to break out is to, I guess, wake up from the matrix. Yeah, and, and, and even if you really are not categorizing humanity on the basis that you aren't a racist, um, you're anti the racist. So you're still mm. stratifying humanity into the goodies and the baddies and the, the, you know, the, the, the people who aren't smart, the people who don't see. I mean, it's all that and so we just have to continually continually say this this is in our dna we need to be evolving into something else and social evolution will lead you know if if we behave in a different way it's it's part of how humans are we actually have incredible power over our own destiny now because we have the capacity to create communities that are different because we choose to do so and as we do that we will actually create biological evolution Mm. 
we will actually change the way that we feel and be because we've, we have actively changed the way we behave it's one of the one of the most amazing things about being human is that we we can actually change our environment in ways that other creatures can't and we can actually resolve to live differently yeah and we will actually change our biology and our dna by doing that uh one of the the key principles uh, of the christian faith is the the approach of loving your enemies and i think growing up i as, as a lot of people who grew up in a christian tradition would your concept of enemy is somebody who has done you wrong perhaps let's say somebody who maybe broke your heart somebody who who betrayed you in in some form of an agreement that you had going but actually, if you label the term enemy as wider than that, as the person who you feel against, if you label it as, you know, if you think of your enemy as the group that when they come up, you're filled with that they're wrong energy, right? So maybe maybe for some people it is asylum seekers. Maybe for some people it's the people who are against asylum seekers. That's It's the hardest person for you to love. Uh, this is going to sound a little odd, but I heard you say it in the last podcast, Peter, inherent in the second commandment is loving yourself mm, mm. and i think the greatest enemy i ever face is myself yeah absolutely and when i when i say and i it is i am not pre- racist or i'm not prejudiced uh that is tragic because what i am doing in an in a very uh unaware way is skating over all the judgments within me. Mm. And everything I judge is part of me that I'm projecting. Jesus used the term of, if you find a splinter in another, deal with a log in your own. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or, or to use another phrase, we do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Mm. And our own perspective is projected out onto the world. And if we are doing it ignorantly, we are doing damage to others and ourselves. Mm, mm. A compassionate, non-judging stance that can acknowledge, oh, there I am. I am a sinner. Mm. I am a sinner. That's right. Is a freeing place because it's a place that allows compassion and light into those dark corners. And I treat softly, tread softly in the world and treat others' hearts Mm. and lives softly. Yeah, when we learn to treat ourselves gently, we... Treat others gently as well. Mm. Mm. And I think that that's probably it as well as if, uh, you know, as Jesus did, if you put yourself, if you're so humble to be able to have your self-awareness uh, and your self, uh, I guess, love at the at such a pure, honest, humble level, then there's nobody, you're not putting anybody below you because you are saying, I accept my own brokenness. I accept my own faults. So I'm not going to insult you for your faults because... Um, except I can see my own reflected right back at me. We we use James, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. There's an incredible disarming power of vulnerability that I am okay with myself because I'm letting you see the parts of me that uh, ordinarily I might fear you would judge. And if I'm not, if I'm allowed, allowing you to see them, then I clearly aren't judging them within me, which is inviting you to be vulnerable. And uh, you've used the word dialogue. Uh, which is this meeting between the two opens this third space between us, which is that non-dual reality, this meeting, this gathering where we are seen and known and how healing that can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Peter, you and I were having a chat uh, some months ago now about the whole refugee asylum seeker situation. 
and um, uh, you were speaking to me about the the mission of trying to humanize these asylum seekers for, I guess, what we would call the the racists, right? How do you humanize them? How do you make them seem you know, like their their neighbor or their, you know, the person who runs the local uh, shop or how do you make them seem like an actual human to them? And it was in that conversation that I realized that the challenge for me is I needed the racists humanized for me because just as they have grouped refugees as this one group who are wrong, who are out there, who are not human, I've done exactly the same within myself. And I think a lot of people on, uh, let's say, the social justice side of, of, of the world have probably done a similar thing is that they are replicating the exact same exclusion and hatred and anger yep. back towards the people who they're angry at for having that exclusion, hatred and anger. And I mean, certainly it, they, they could, and, and maybe there is an argument justify it by saying, but what they're doing is fundamentally wrong for these reasons. But the point is, I think forget who's right or wrong. It actually doesn't help us get anywhere. Because the racists, if they, if and I even calling them the racists is wrong, but the people with those perspectives, if we hate them, if we think mm. they're wrong, they're not going to come around to our way of thinking. They're not no, going to change no. their mind. That's right. They'll just get, you know, they'll dig deeper into their trench and start lobbing grenades back. Absolutely. That, and that's why labels are so destructive. Mm. And and I, I find political. I, I go to I go to some rallies because because I see them as important bits of political theatre and we need more public... We need more public theatre in the political space. Uh, But I'm always troubled by some of the stuff I hear at rallies and some of the chants because they do tend to demonise someone. I remember a few years ago being at a marriage. What was it? it was a, a rally in favour of civil partnerships here in Queensland, or trying to trying to defend civil partnerships just after the LNP government came into power and on the promise that it would rescind civil partnerships. And speaker after speaker, uh, they, they were angry for a good reason. I mean, they, these people's lives were being trampled on. So I understood where the anger came from. But speaker after speaker uh, demonised uh, members of the then new government. And after a while, I said to one of the organisers, I said, I understand why, we, why this needs to be said because people are, these people are angry and I, I understand why they would be angry and they've got every good reason to be angry because they feel like they are being dismissed and their lives are being trampled on and it's horrible but to respond in this way is not going to persuade the new government to change its mind because mm. all we're doing is through this act, we're labelling them, we're calling them bigots, telling them to do various things with bits of their anatomy. And um, and, and, that, and that always troubles me about rallies. You know, this, this year I'm going to speak again at the Palm Sunday rally and I feel... I guess most comfortable in that rally because it is about peace. But we always have to be careful in those bits of political theatre how we turn them into something that's actually helpful in opening the dialogue. And and so I'm always encouraged, say, at a, at a rally for on behalf of refugees and asylum or people seek, people who are refugees and seeking asylum, that people tend to tell the stories of those people and focus on their humanity 
uh, and hopefully it becomes part of an act of persuasion rather than um, an attack. But at its core, that's the most powerful way to break down the dehumanization of somebody yeah. is to hear their story. Hear their real yeah. story. And that was the power of the, the sanctuary movement. We had, you know, for the vigil in the cathedral, we had a, the the names, photos and stories of 23 children. Mm. And that's what really won people's hearts over. They weren't just, they weren't refugees. They weren't asylum seekers. They were people seeking asylum. They were children with real stories. And that shifted Australia's perception of mandatory detention Mm. more than just about Mm. anything else. Yeah, that's right. And I I think even back, you know, the other way, is it's so easy to classify everybody who has voted for Donald Trump or voted for Pauline Hanson maybe Mm. or, or whoever it might be. It is so easy to classify them as harmful, as hateful, as yep. as as wrong, um, as stupid. Really, mm. is is the 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 rhetoric that comes out. But you know, I I know uh, somewhat well somebody who is a, a Trump supporter, and I was chatting to them. And once you heard why, I could hear the fear from what they're mm. talking about. Mm. Similar to what you just mentioned. Now, I believe this was a perception. I don't think it was a reality, but they, there is a feeling that something that they hold dear to their life had been taken away, had, yes. was being trampled on. Yes. They were losing what they knew. And so suddenly when you see that these people, they're not, they're not, <laughs> they're not sitting around thinking, how can we make the world a worse place? They're not uh-huh. sitting, like they are acting out of this deep longing, like every human is for the world that they think is best. Um, and, and actually that the only way we can ever get past the dualistic divides is to, you know, literally and metaphorically break bread with the people mm. we most disagree with. Hear Absolutely. their stories. Yeah. Because maybe I can't connect to the fact you wanted to vote for Donald Trump, but I can certainly connect to fear. Yes. You know, I can certainly empathize with 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 fear yeah. that something's been taken from you. Yeah. Working with men, uh, we have a saying in our men's work that men have shy souls. Uh, they carry a lot of shame and uh, sense of failure, but they cover that up with... Uh, external mechanisms of uh, veneer to make their uh, to, to hide their shame and to make their lives look successful so when you put men in a circle to hear each other's stories you need a very uh, clear container well-defined container which means that a man will not try to fix another man advise another man correct another man instruct another man but simply say i hear you simply Mm. say I hear you and it's a strange thing that a man from any walk of life can share any perspective from his own life and even if his political persuasion is totally opposite yours even if his his values are different to yours uh, you can hear him and we've had experiences where where people from very from opposing perspectives on so many things hear the struggle and even if I don't agree with their conclusions or their perspectives, I hear their struggle and I go, I hear you. And that brings a sense of closeness, a sense of a, a, uh, inclusion, which is quite dramatic. Well, a, a story I think I might have mentioned on the first podcast was the uh, interfaith dinner that, that you and I actually went to. Um, and I will call you dad in this story. I uh, went to an interfaith dinner at a mosque last year, an iftar dinner. Um, and you know, I was, I'll be honest, I, uh, despite the fact I do speak about a lot of this stuff and feel strongly about a lot of this stuff, it was quite a foreign world I was entering. Um, and I was quite nervous going into the evening, 
But I remember sitting at that table and I had, I remember there was a, two Muslim guys uh, on, on one side of me. There was a, a guy who was reporting on the thing. He was a self-proclaimed atheist. He was there. There was a Jewish man who was there. And I think there might've been a Buddhist in the room somewhere, but I was sitting at this end of the table, having a conversation over dinner. And within five minutes, we were debating um, the, the, I think it was the opening batting pair for the Australian cricket team. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, very quickly I realized, oh, they're just human. They're they're exactly like me. Mm, mm. And, but my mind over years, you know, through seeing Hollywood films about the Middle East and hearing the scary, you know, Islamic music that they play over the shots of the terrorists, you know, every part of me has been conditioned to think of them as the other and wrong. But yep. but they agree with me just as much that David Warner needed a really settled partner in the batting <laughs> 11, and that's exactly what he's got in Matt Renshaw. <laughs> now, <laughs> Renshaw needs a settled partner. That's, <laughs> another topic. that's an entirely different conversation. So, look, I, 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 think, I think this is fascinating. I think something we should definitely touch on, though, before we do wrap up, is the concept of Jesus as a non-dualist. Because I have brought this up in conversation with people in the past, and they will quote, the quite famous phrase of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which in many ways, uh, I think a lot of people use as justification for dualism. Absolutely. Jesus is saying, he is the truth. This yes. is the truth. That's that's not up for debate. And if this is the truth, the way, and the life, yep. that means the other approaches, the Islamic approach, the agnostic approach, the Jewish approach, must be by condition untrue, yes. uh, a wrong way, and and not life. Yes, so how do you interpret, I guess, that from a non-dualist perspective? Well, I, I interpret it through John's own gospel. Um, one, of the, one of the problems with John's gospel, at least the way people read it, is, is because chapter 1, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so on, is, is a fairly tight philosophical piece based on creation um, Story and the idea of wisdom from from proverb, proverbs, um, it 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 tends to just get parked. People sort of skip from skip over chapter one and get straight into the meat, if you like. But um, my understanding is chapter one sets the sets the ground rules and and describes who Jesus is. So that you therefore interpret the rest of the gospel through the lens of chapter one, and so when Jesus in in uh, chapter six is saying, "I am the way, the truth, and the life," you have to go back to chapter one to work out who it is that is saying this. In chapter one, we learn that Jesus is the light that enlightens everyone is coming into the world. So if Jesus is the you know if Jesus is the embodied creative principle which is the light that enlightens everyone you take that forward to hearing that statement about I am the way the truth and the life who is the way the truth and the life the creative principle that enlightens everyone so it's not it's not um this camp over here versus that camp over there. It's basically saying this creative principle is to be found in everyone's heart in some place. And if everybody was to look for that light in themselves and then in others, then they would find the way, the truth and the life. 
So it's not about party politics. It's not Christian party politics. Mm. It's actually about deep, deep humanity. And John's gospel has within itself the resources to undo its the dualistic reading that people place upon it. So many of the first chapters of books in the New Testament have cosmic elements. Absolutely. So many of them, uh, Ephesians does, Colossians yes, that's does, right. uh, Hebrews does. I could just keep going. That's right. And John, of course, does. And there is this essence that that Jesus is the embodiment of a term that Matthew Fox used, the cosmic Christ. Yeah. Uh, the sense of uh, this universal goodness of God make, made manifest in flesh. And as you say, it's uh, it's not exclusive. It's not a domain that's held by anyone. Yeah, it's inclusive and covers all of humanity. In fact, all of creation. That's right. And then, you know, John John then reminds us of how we stuff that up by saying that you know he was with us, and we all you know, instead of saying they missed him, you know, we miss it. And so, you know, chapter one keeps keeps pointing out about the presence of the divine with us, but how we miss it, and because we miss it, we stuff up. And so it's all there. It's actually the way John's gospel was constructed, and to take to take this little proof text out of the out and put onto it a completely different philosophical understanding, which is dualistic, is basically not true to John's gospel. And one of the things I think is really important in biblical scholarship is that you're true to the whole of a particular book which is why i'm really against the idea of quoting from another gospel to prove something you know like this year is the year of matthew so we're living with matthew this year and a bit of john as we um as as happens but you know it's looking for who the writer of matthew understood jesus to be not supplement not building a picture of someone else or a fruit salad jesus by cutting up bits of the other gospels and adding a bit of romans it's actually this year for us is grappling with so who did matthew understand jesus to be and what does that invite us to understand for ourselves and next year it will be who did mark or the writer of mark think jesus to be and we will be exploring completely different territory because these guys all had very different lenses and that way we stop being dualistic because we enter into this polyphonic christ who is not exclusively defined by matthew or mark or luke or john or paul or the writer of the hebrews it's this polyphonic christ the early church knew jesus in this polyphonic way which is why we have these different voices that don't harmonize because they open us up to this diversity um I've, i want to know because obviously Peter, you have given your uh, life uh, professionally, for the most part, to the Christian faith, particularly the Anglican tradition of the Christian faith. Um, you have not gone to a mosque. You have not, uh, I, I guess, gone to a Buddhist temple. You have found your meaning and your connection to the divine through this uh, tradition of faith. So how do you hold... Because often people will be like, we certainly should be loving to the other religions or the other the other beliefs. But how do you not... I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. 
how do you not jump to saying that they're wrong, that you are right and that their way is invalid? Do you, because obviously you, you so fully believe in the Jesus tradition, as we've just discussed, and there is so much meaning found in the Christian tradition. Yeah. But, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned before my, the story of when I was quite young, you know, I'd drive past a mosque and think they think they're right just as much as we do. And, and how naive of me to say that a privileged white middle class Western kid at, you know, 23 uh, has the truth in a, you know, a 55 year old Indian man in the slums yeah. who has a different truth. He's wrong. So how do you not say that, that for us to be right, Islam has to be wrong? for example? Um, I'm not really interested in right and wrong, I have to say. Um, mm. And I guess being part of the Christian tradition has taught me that um, because of the diversity. Like in my own tradition, you know, there's a joke in Anglican circles when people say, so what's the Anglican view on divorce or marriage, equality or abortion? The answer is many things. <laughs> because in, within, you know, within my tradition, that is the truth. I mean, the, the, our, our tradition is a very complex creature that holds together through relationship rather than through ideology. And so being part of the Anglican Church has taught me that the quest for being right is not a fruitful one. You'll end up fighting with each other till the cows come home. Um, I had to struggle with that whole dynamic as I entered the Christian tradition because for me, throughout my teenage years, there was the creation-evolution debate, which was set up for me as you've got to choose sides in this, and I've had to lay that aside uh, and willingly laid it aside to find the riches of... Um, what it means to be created and evolving and, and still wrestling with that in a quantum universe. Um, and so I don't visit, I do visit mosques and I listen to Buddhist people, but I, I, I do it from that, I guess, from the sense of inquiry that was why I started off being a scientist and which then also allowed me to explore the Christian faith was I really just want to know what other people are on about. And mm. so I don't, I don't go in to defend my belief structures because for me it is so, so tightly um, connected to experience that I don't need, and I don't always have the words anyway, and so I go to dialogue with Muslims in the hope of finding out something new and exciting mm. and to hear resonances of the divine that, you know, if, we, if, if John is right that the light that enlightens everyone that's coming into the world, then the, the Buddhist tradition will reflect that light in a way that my tradition through the culture enculturation of it um, won't and so I, you know, I engage with a sense of excitement and what am I going to learn? And I'm not threatened because you know, my 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 sense of the divine is relational, not ideological. It's like you know, for me, if the, if the bones of Jesus turn up in Jerusalem, I won't it won't disturb my faith. It will just help me express my faith in a different way you know the, the resurrection the resurrection is not dependent on the bones of jesus disappearing mm. and so you know i'm just i'm i guess it's partly because i was 
always interested in science and that's a that is a embodiment of curiosity and inquisitiveness that I just take that into my engagement in in my own burnout uh, I uh, as I said went looking for answers and uh, while I could get the abstract answers they were of no use to me <clears throat> I found poetry to be very helpful uh, the poetry of T.S. Eliot, the poet, a lot of poetry, uh, Mary Oliver, mm, David mm, White. Mm. But the poems that brought me most alive were those of Haviz and Rumi, oh, yes, uh, Sufi mystics. And yes. when I found the Christ swimming into my eyes as I read the poetry of Muslim men, mm, I mm. suddenly discovered how much I had uh, excluded and not even been aware of. Yeah. Uh, depths of mm, wisdom and mm. depths of awareness and... Uh, that that became extraordinary for me. Yeah. It's as if, as if almost as if that moment, the big bang moment, happened inside my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, the big bang is a metaphor for for life. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting in the sense of I know at the cathedral here, Peter, you regularly use the phrase the mystery of faith. Yeah, and I think that's um that is the the healthiest starting point that I have heard because. If you always remind yourself that the the divine is so so incomprehensible, so much bigger, like not even so much bigger, because it's beyond the way a human mind can comprehend. Mm, mm. It's not above; it's beyond. It's a different mm. comprehension. And if you always start with the humility of the mystery of faith, and I know Richard Raw, who you're a big fan of, uh, Dad, calls it the flow. It's the the the. Mm the flow that you the loving flow that you can always the divine dance that you can always enter if you start at that point then you're much less concerned about you know where you got on mm. <laughs> did you mm. enter through this faith or this faith or yeah. you know it, instead it's it's more just that now you are here and you are existing in it you are present to it um which of course opens a whole can of worms about the the Christian tradition's uh, emphasis on converting people and you know signing you up like a political party. Um, I imagine you had that approach when you were younger as well. You had people come up trying to wanting to sign you up to the Christian faith. Oh, indeed, indeed, yeah, yeah. All I had to do is believe that Noah's Ark was sitting on Mount Ararat, and I'd be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and but yeah, you know, we we. It depends how one sees conversion, yes. and if we're talking about a way, then there will be others who will want to join the way, and and people people will experience conversion. Um, I think the difference. I think I think that we get into trouble if we feel that we have to convert them. Mm. But you know, so our our. You know, I think the strength of of good communities is that they live the life and invite others to come in, but to to come in, to visit, to feel free to come in, not to sign up. And uh, over time, there are people who say, "I want that too," and so they join that community not because they were scared into it or for, you know, or, you know, or convinced in a sort of coercive manner, but they they see the way and they want that way, and they realise that this particular expression of it is for them. Which is why I think I actually think we need we need denominations. I just think denominations need to get over their um, being anti the others and and look for look for what it is that they offer and live and and get on with living it. 
conversion and evangelism for me has done a complete turnabout and uh, borrowing from from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, as much as you've done it to the least, you've done it to me. So when I seek out those who are in prison, those who are naked, those who are hungry, those who are sick, those who are other, and I might exclude, not to bring them to my way of thinking, but that they might convert me. So by hearing their story and understanding their struggle, compassion is aroused in me. That the work is done by my engagement with those that I would exclude so that I might be included, not that they might be included. Uh, I know that's a, an entirely different way to see it, but uh, I, I recognize there that I've released my power and I recognize theirs. And by empowering them, I am empowered. I am won over to them by love. And uh, I, I, it, it, I, I have little time now for old models of evangelism, which requires somebody to say or do something to be included uh, but for me to hear their story and journey with them, because that means we're on a way together. We haven't arrived. Well, how can you arrive at mystery? Yeah, how can you <laughs> arrive at mystery? Yeah. Well, well, look, that, I think that's open about two or three other podcast topics. Because um, uh, I, think, I think central to this is probably the way we view God. Um, and, you know, in the sense of... Uh, it's much easier to buy into a, a concept of right and wrong if you you feel that God is only going to reward the right. Mm-hmm. So we we might discuss that. Or, or the left. Or or the left. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Um, uh, thank you so much. I have really struggled with calling you Richard. So thank you very much, Dad. I'm sorry, it's just very unnatural to me. Um, uh, I'd love to get you back on another podcast some stage soon. Uh, your work as a counselor, I think, is is fascinating. Talking about the transformative pain of suffering. So. We'll uh, lock in a, a date for that. Um, thank you, Peter. It's been great thank to you, chat Dom. as always. Excellent. Thank and, you. And um, we'll be back for another episode of the On The Way podcast uh, sometime soon. Excellent. Thank, thank you. you.